0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2, a study in the book of Revelation. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, with a message titled The Killing of Mankind.
1: Every once in a while, there are programs on television that depict what nature would be like without people. If all the people of this earth were to disappear, say these television programs, soon the great cities of the earth would be decaying and nature would make a comeback. The animals on the brink of extinction would make a comeback. The hydroelectric dams that block rivers would eventually collapse and rivers would then again run freely and things would return to a state of normalcy. See, the net effect of this kind of thinking is that human beings are seen as the curse of the earth. I mean, we destroy nature, harmony, and the balance of things. Now, in truth, I mean, that line of thinking is starting to be pervasive. You know, save the planet, says the modern-day slogan. And the idea, of course, is that as we people have multiplied, we curse the planet. Now, of course, it is true that if we don't care for nature and if we abuse nature, there are consequences. But human beings are not the curse of the earth. We're the resource. We're the blessing of this earth. Indeed, according to the Bible, God created this earth as our home. That is, the earth was created to serve us. But I'm getting off track. What I really wish to communicate is that there is a day coming when the earth will be dramatically and frighteningly depopulated in a very short period of time. This will not seem to be a blessing. Indeed, it will come as a sign of judgment. See, in our study of Revelation, we've noticed that with the blowing of the trumpets, the long-awaited day of the Lord has arrived. And at first, judgment falls on nature, a blazing star from heaven falls on fresh water, causes bitterness and even death, and so forth. And then with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, we see a great demonic horde being released to torment the human race. But the fifth trumpet only introduced suffering, and people were longing to die. They'd soon get their wish. Revelation 9.12 summarizes the situation up to this point. It says, The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Indeed, as we come to the blowing of the sixth trumpet, we see the situation on earth moving from desperate to unspeakable. I'm reading Revelation 9.13-15. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. You know, as the sixth trumpet sounds, we're told that the voice that speaks, and we have to assume it's a voice that is the voice of God, speaks from the four horns of the golden altar, and that's no insignificant detail. Back in the last chapter, we were told that the prayers of God's people are rising from the altar. And so here we are again, and John wants to remind us that God has been hearing the prayers of his people as they've been crying out for justice. Oh, Lord, how long? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Reveal your glory, O oh Lord. It seems that God wants to communicate to his people that he is answering their prayers. And so the angel that's blown the sixth trumpet is commanded to release four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, back in chapter 7, we learned of four angels that were standing at the four corners of the earth, and these angels were holding back the winds of God's wrath until the time was appropriate. But, but those four angels in chapter 7 and the four angels in chapter 9 are surely different angels. For one, the four angels of chapter 9 are bound, and that usually indicates that they're demonic beings. And second, as it will become clear as we read, these four angels lead a horrifying demonic horde in a massive assault on the human race that will result in one-third of the earth's population dying under their assault. And that brings me again to the image of them being bound. You know, I wonder if this earth has ever understood why it is that Satan and the great principalities and powers who, who hate God and the human race that God has created in his image, why is it that they've not afflicted greater horror than there has already been? You see, it might seem to us that they've already done as much as they can. I mean, constant wars, terrorist bombings. Massive ethnic cleansing that have included everything from the Jewish Holocaust to the slaughter of Armenians to the killing fields of Cambodia. I mean, the horrors go on and on. But never in human history has the slaughter been so great that it destroys one-third of the human race. I, I can't even begin to fathom The need to dispose of hundreds of millions of bodies, the danger of disease, the the depletion of human resources, utterly gutting the Earth's economies, the empty buildings in major cities resulting in everything from rats to anarchist gangs. I mean, the list of ramifications seems impossible to comprehend. See, verse 15 tells us that the four angels who will lead the worst onslaught of demons in human history, that, that these four have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Now, if you think that language is strange, think again. As God was pouring out his plagues on Egypt and as Pharaoh was stubbornly resisting to the detriment of his nation, God speaks. I'm, I'm, I'm reading now from Exodus nine sixteen. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Let me put that in my own words. The reason God elevated Pharaoh to the rank he would fulfill was so that his massive failure would show the whole earth the great power and the glory of the one true God. Pharaoh existed for that reason. You know what that should tell us? It should tell us that should we rebel against God, we don't defeat God. Rather, he works out his purposes in us through our condemnation. I mean, those are sobering thoughts indeed. It's far better to bend the knee and fulfill God's purposes in our lives as God sends us grace and mercy. But in the end, God wins. He always wins. I mean, after all, he's God. And if that's so of human beings, it's also so of demons. These four commanders of Satan's army exist to fulfill God's purposes. Even as they rage against God, they will only fulfill his purposes. Now, one more thing before we move on. We're told that these four angels are bound at the river Euphrates. And you might wonder what the significance of that might be. You know, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he promised him that his descendants would inherit a tract of land that would stretch from the Nile in the south to the Euphrates in the east. You know, over the course of Jewish history, the Euphrates represented the boundary line between Israel and her worst enemies. I mean, first it was the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. I mean, those two nations that destroyed much of Israel, they came from beyond Euphrates. I think we have a vision here. Four mighty demons are bound at the boundary of the human race, waiting to cross the divide, come to destroy See, up till now, they have been prevented, being held at bay by the strong power of God who extends his mercy to the human race. And so at the time of God's own choosing, he now releases them, and instantly we see the result. I'm reading Revelation 9, 16 to 17. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Now, if you've listened to the previous study on Revelation, I mean the one where I discussed the locust-like demons that tortured people for five months, it may now occur to you that that vision was but a precursor to this one. As frightening as the last one was, this elevates the level of terror to an unimaginable degree. Even the most violent and and the darkest horror movie we have seen can't be compared to what John is describing here right now. You know, for those of you who remember the book of Joel, you might call to mind that in Joel, the book starts with a plague of locusts that destroyed the crop in Israel. But after the locusts, Joel calls for a trumpet of alarm to blow in Zion. Blow the trumpet in Zion, he says. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. A day darker than the locust plague is at hand. A great army is approaching. And I think, as I read through the prophet Joel, he is describing the merciless invasion of the Babylonians coming from beyond the Euphrates. And in Revelation chapter 9, that seems exactly the picture here. First is the invasion of the locust like demons, but that was only the first wave. What follows are mounted troops of demons. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, well, that actually makes 200 million. Now, I don't know if we're supposed to take that number as a literal number or as a representative number, but we are to imagine mounted troops as large as any plague of locusts, and they're coming not to defeat a country. No, these are killers. They are coming to kill the human race.
0: The Back to the Bible ministry team met to discuss in simple terms what this ministry is all about. Well, here's what was determined. We teach the Bible, that's it. Bible teaching, that others would come to know and grow in Christ our world, country, communities, and neighbors need to hear the good news, and we're relentlessly committed to that purpose. We're praying that you'll stand with us. This June, we're asking you to help us to reach our goal of $338,000. Now that's a significant goal, but together it's achievable. This month, a group of friends have committed to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $75,000. So take advantage of this great opportunity. Double your impact as together we teach the Bible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
1: As John describes the millions of mounted troops which are in fact demons, He describes an oncoming army as far as the eye can see, like locusts that seem to have no end, so this army is large enough that escape is impossible. The riders on the horses have breastplates of red, blue, and yellow, and that seems to match the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that's coming out of the mouths of the horses. The heads of the horses are like lion's heads, and we must assume the kind of an animal that can devour its prey. Imagine, if you will, flesh-eating horses descending in untold numbers. I'm reading now verses 18 and 19. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. It's fascinating that it's not the riders who do the killing— The killing is done by the horses, both their heads and wounding in their tails. You know, if the heads of savage flesh-eating horses is not terrifying enough, if you avoid their heads, the horses are soon all around you and their tails themselves have the heads of snakes and they bite and they wound. See, I want to stop now and restate something I've said before. The language that's found here is not intended to symbolize some kind of future warfare. I mean, to hear some people tell it; these things are tanks or backfire bombers or long-range missiles, the list of possibilities just goes on and on, but to state that is to miss the very point that Revelation is trying to make. Revelation is telling us that when the scroll of destiny in the hands of Christ is rolled open and the great day of the Lord occurs, the first series of events that take place is supposed to be a divine warning. It's a great thunderclap. The people of earth at this point in time will become overwhelmingly aware what is happening to them. It's coming as a judgment from the throne of God. If you page back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, we read, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone... Slave and free hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, the point is that the earth's citizens are made unmistakably aware that this is coming directly from the God of heaven and from his one and only Son. In this time, it will be unmistakably clear that Christ reigns. If this were simply a depiction of human warfare, then other explanations would be offered up. People might think that their enemy is another nation or another race of people or another ideology, but instead the people of earth are just as aware of where this comes from as Pharaoh of Egypt was in his day. Do you remember what Pharaoh's advisor said? I'm reading Exodus 8 verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And that's what humanity will conclude as the terror of horses and riders kill one-third of the human race. In the wake of this, the endless graves, the endless funeral pyres, simply to deal with the dead, they will say nothing like this has ever happened. This is the finger of God. Now, on the one hand, we might think this is horrible, but please remember two things. As we've already noticed, God has been protecting those who have his seal on their foreheads. And so, as horrible as this is, God is protecting his own. He's signaling that anyone who wants the seal of God can have it. It's his divine invitation. And that will seem inescapably real. And then second, for the two-thirds of the human race that survives the sixth trumpet blast, this is a divine warning. As horrible as all of this is, it is still a lesser horror than that which awaits those who will not bend the knee and submit to the one whose divine ownership of all things is being played out. It is far more horrifying to stand before the great white throne of judgment. See, God has never relinquished his right to the whole of creation. This is his world, and so to resist the creator, well, that's an act of treason. And so this horror is intended to give men and women the chance to fall on their knees and repent, to come to their senses and to say, as overwhelmingly horrible as this is, it could be a lot worse. So let's continue to read. And I'm reading Revelation 9:20 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You know, why will they not repent? Well, according to Romans 2 verse 4, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. But what do we do when the day of kindness ends, when the day of wrath is before us? For those of us who think that the kindness is always ours to choose, we're making a massive miscalculation. In Acts 5.31, we read that God is the one who gives repentance as well as forgiveness of sins. And so, if you don't feel like repenting, ask God to change your heart on that matter. And we notice here that there are five things that human beings will not repent of. The first of the five takes up most of this small paragraph. It's, it's the sin of idolatry. You know, this matter of idolatry is, for some of us, a very difficult matter to understand. The ancient world in which John lived was a world that was filled with idols. The Greeks and the Romans, I mean, those were an idolatrous culture. They had thousands of gods. They had hundreds of temples dedicated to various idols, and and they had idols for every eventuality. If you needed to get pregnant, if you needed rain on your crops, if, if you needed a safe journey across the ocean, or if you needed victory over your enemy, and if you needed your business to succeed, or if you wanted success in love, every human endeavor had an idol or a god that was attached to that endeavor. The idols were a way of guaranteeing your success in life. But, of course, the gods were fickle, and so you had to appease them. Now, that meant either performing a ritual or offering up a sacrifice or saying a prayer or some other thing was required. But the point is, if you did it right, you'd be successful. Now, all idols are the product of human imagination, and all idols were made by human hands. Idols were a constant reminder that that your future lay in your own hands. All you had to do was be ingenious enough. If you didn't like a prophecy from a priestess, well, just pay another one, perhaps more money, and you'd get what you wanted. In the end, the point of idolatry is the assurance that you could be successful in life if you just arranged things well. And that philosophy is still the philosophy of our day. So many people actually believe that they're the captain of their own ship. And if they arrange matters admirably, all is going to be well. And they discount the God of heaven. See, I can imagine people in the great day of the Lord. Their idols have all failed. One third of the earth now lies dead. And what's to be done? They run back to their idols because that's what they have always done. The great danger for you and I is that we would do the same. There are all manner of people who will not trust in the Lord because for them it's just a crutch. Believe in yourself, they say. Have confidence in you. Develop better plans. Discover the giant within you. Understand the power of self esteem and self confidence. You're going to be as right as rain. But, of course, John knows that all of that is idolatry, and what's behind the idolatry is the worshiping of demons. The great God of heaven is now showing all that to be a lie and an illusion, but they can't repent. And then John adds, that idolatry is not their only sin. Added to their idolatry is murder. For whence you use all ingenuity to get what you want, You might want also to use your ingenuity to get rid of people who are standing in your way of getting what you want. And then John adds sorceries, which is the use of the occult to get what you want, and then the sin of sexual immorality, which is the gratification of desire. And finally, theft, which is again directed towards one's own desire. I have strong counsel to all who will listen. I want to urge you to, with all your being, fight against sin. If you're a Christian, ask the Lord to give you strength as you fight against that which brings the chastisement of God into your life. And if you're not a Christian, simply turn from sin and turn to God. It's because judgment is coming. And if it should be that the great day of the Lord is still some distance away, know also that your own death is not a great distance away. Your life is soon going to be over, and you must stand before the great judgment. And I would not have you stand there with all your sins. You must surrender your life into the hands of Christ. You must recognize that even giving us this picture, God is giving us grace today so that that day should not fall upon us. By God's grace, you do have today. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the appointed time. Simply say, Lord Jesus, I renounce my sin and I turn to you. Give me now your Holy Spirit that I might all my life renounce my sin and all my life trust in your saving grace. Thank you for being gracious to me.
0: John, this past year we've been inviting people to invest in the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. They include our daily Bible teaching program with you, a laugh again an admittedly unique ministry featuring Phil Calloway, but one that is profoundly connecting with people and their walk with Christ. And in doubt, what an impact in doubt has made and is making in the lives of young people as they candidly discuss very real, relevant, and raw issues young people face. But I also want to acknowledge that there are many ministries worthy of God's people investing in. But if I were to ask you directly why people should invest in the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, what might you say?
1: Well, I think I'd give a biblical answer that comes from 1 Corinthians 12. God has appointed in the church, first of all, apostles, then prophets, then teachers— and then all the other gifts. You know, the apostles and prophets have given us the truth once for all laid down, that's the Bible. Teachers are called upon to explain the Bible and its significance in every generation. The rest of the gifts, or I might say, Ben, as you've said it, all of the other ministries that are out there, they're doing a good work. But if we are devoid of Bible teaching, all of the other ministries will eventually fall apart as well. This Bible teaching ministry is the staple. It's the groundwork. It's the basis upon which other ministries flow. And so I want to say that a ministry like this one is worthy of support because it teaches the Bible. The revelation of God's Word must be heard. This is as necessary as it can possibly be. And Ben, I want to say everybody says their ministry is most important, but I want to say from the Scripture— Bible teaching is the staple upon which the Church of Jesus Christ is strengthened. Okay, so why specifically Back to the Bible? Well, I want to say Back to the Bible is a uniquely Canadian ministry. It reaches Canadians, it's by Canadians, it's to Canadians, and we are unapologetically scriptural in reaching out to Canadians in this country. Thanks so much, John, and and please
0: consider helping us towards our fiscal year-end goal right here at Back to the Bible Canada. Your gift would mean so much, so call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, well, we teach the Bible.